Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I'm here with Archie Wright to talk about his new book, Satan and the Problem of Evil, From the Bible to the Early Church Fathers, published by Fortress Press, 2022. In Satan and the Problem of Evil, Satan's transformation from op- Opaque functionary to chief antagonist is one of the most striking features in the development of Jewish theology in the Second Temple period and beyond. Once no more than an accuser, a testing member of the human community, Satan, along with his demons, is presented by Jewish apocalyptic texts and New Testament as the source of evil in the world. Wright charts the development of the Satan tradition and the problem of evil from the Hebrew Bible and its various translations in the Greek Greek Septuagint to Jewish literature from the Second Temple period to the Greek New Testament. The book concludes by examining the writings of early church theologians from the late 1st century through the early 4th century CE. There, Wright argues that these later writers present a shift in the understanding of Satan to one that is significantly different from the Jewish scriptures, extra-biblical Jewish literature, and the New Testament. The book is excessively written and comprehensive in scope, And Satan in The Problem of Evil offers researchers, scholars, students, and even the general reader a definitive treatment on the perennial question of Satan. Archie, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Jackson. I appreciate it. Well, I thought uh, Satan in the Problem of Evil was an informative, I I would say meticulous book. It goes over uh, every, every quote and part of Satan you could find in this material, Uh, stuff that I I was uh, even shocked by. But before we get into this content of the book, I want to ask a little bit about your academic background and what led to the writing and publication of Satan and the Problem of Evil. Uh, Well, my PhD dissertation um, was kind of started with the problem of evil. That's something that when I was doing my master's degree in early Judaism and ancient language became one of my primary interests. And then I um, started searching for someone to do a PhD with, and I found Lauren Stuckenbrook at the University of Durham in England. And for the next five years, uh, basically he and I, I suppose how you put it, (laughs) as a supervisor, worked on the origin of the problem of evil in Second Temple Judaism, in particular, One Enoch and the Book of Jubilees. And then I realized that in the midst of working on that, that there's a lot of questions about the Satan figure him himself or itself, whatever you want to call him or it. And, you know, the understanding of what or who he is in the modern, particularly the evangelical church, um, a lot of that imagery that we have or the tradition that we have of this figure today comes from, and people may be shocked by this, from Dante's Inferno and... Milton's Paradise Lost. 
Um, of course, it starts earlier than that. Like I said, in the early church fathers, like you mentioned, I think there's a shift there from what we saw in previous literature. But um, that's kind of how it all started. And I think that, you know, the question of the problem of evil, I mean, Satan seems to be the central figure in that. So, or at least that's what most people would suggest. Sure. Uh, so, so, so we have these misconceptions, particular, particularly within American and maybe Anglo-American, maybe even now global evangelical Pentecostal conceptions, preconceptions of Satan. Let's go back to the earliest uh, instances of Satan. How is this character or this figure portrayed in the Hebrew Bible? Well, very different. <laughs> um, you know, there really is no characterization of the figure in the Hebrew Bible or the Greek Septuagint in the same manner that we have in our 21st, 20th, 21st century view of him. He is within that context, if we're talking about the Satan figure, Hasatan, he always seems to be operating under the authority and the guidance and the sovereignty of uh, the God of Israel, Yahweh, or Elohim, depending on which text we're looking at in particular, but, um, you know, when we get to the book of Job, even there is probably the clearest example of who the Satan figure is, that he is one who is probably a member of what we call the divine council that appears in Job 1 and 2, which are the Bene Ha'elohim, or the sons of God, which of course come, you know, is prominent in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, which is what I did my dissertation on, and the origin of evil spirits. Um, but there are other texts in the Old Testament that, you know, refer to other figures that are identified as Hasatan. Even the angel of the Lord in Numbers 22 in particular is a really prominent text that, you know, the angel of the Lord comes as a Satan and stops uh, Balaam and his donkey in the midst of that text when he's on his, on his way to prophesy. So it's not just this, it seems to be there's more than one particular Hasatan operating in the Jewish scriptures, whether it be the Hebrew Bible or the Septuagint. Um, so it's, you know, there's not a clear picture of who exactly this figure is in, in the Jewish scriptures, you know, um, even in the ancient world, the ancient Near East, there's some, you know, I think I mentioned it early on in the book, you know, there's maybe some characteristics of this figure in, in Zoroastrianism or some of the other ancient texts. But in the Hebrew Bible itself, um, very different than what the modern concept of who he is or what he is. It seems that almost that Hasatan is necessarily a, a figure like what we would associate Satan, capital S, but as you indicate in the passage in Numbers, Hasatan is like a title or it's or it's like a descriptor of someone, right? Someone becomes Hasatan by their actions. But there are, are – yeah. It seems to be more of a function than it is a figure itself. Maybe perhaps even some have argued that it's an office or part of the hierarchy of the divine council in the ancient world of the Israelites. So that's – possibly were or what it is rather than a f actual f singular figure in the Hebrew Bible. Now, see, Archie, I can already hear, say, someone who, who firmly adheres to a popular notion of Satan saying, well, 
you have to look at uh, Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14, right? And I saw uh, Satan coming down like lightning, right? How how do those pa- what are those passages actually actually talking about? Well, I I get, I get into that in the later part of the book in the early church fathers because you know they're they're the ones who are primarily responsible for that interpretation of Ezekiel twenty eight and Isaiah fourteen, where I think I go cle- I clearly state or go through the literature there and it's pretty clear that those texts are talking about a human king, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, maybe even Nebuchadnezzar, depending on who you're, who you're citing with in the argument. But I don't believe it's um, a Satan figure as, as our modern evangelical world would have it. But um, the early church fathers had a habit of doing you know, this apologetic or um, way of interpreting scripture in order to fit their needs. And as you, you'll see in that particular section of the book there, they were had a prominent argument going on with the Gnostics and who this Satan figure was. And this is where I think probably part of that change occurs. But those two texts, you know, they're always being thrown out there. This is about Satan. But, you know, to be honest, I don't think it is. Um, I think that's another misconception. But the early church fathers used those texts in order to promote what they were trying to fight off in the beginning centuries of the early church. So, you know, that's what they did. So as we transition away from the Hebrew Bible, uh, more towards Second Temple Judaism, we get to the, the next part of your book focuses on the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essene community that was very, very dualistic, right? Uh, 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 cosmologically, anthropologically, what have you. But Satan, or that name, or that is Satan, doesn't really appear frequently. What, what, what name in that in the Dead Sea Scrolls? you indicate is, is more prevalent for speaking of personified evil. Well, the main figure is the belly or belly owl figure. Um, but as I, as I write in the book, I'm not so sure that's always has to be a personified evil where it could simply be the term. I mean, it basically, it means wicked or wickedness is what the term means. And it becomes somewhat personified in some of the texts which I don't, I don't argue that every on every occurrence it's not talking about personified evil, but there certainly are um, occasion more occasions where it's not talking about that. It's talking about an overall wickedness that's uh, penetrated Israel or the people of Israel during that time period. In fact, you know the figure Satan, and I mentioned this. It only really only the term appears six times in the Aramaic Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so if, if in the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish scriptures, it's such a prominent anti-God figure, why then does it seem to kind of disappear for, you know, a period of, you know, basically four or 500 years during the second temple period? Um, why is it not more prominent? In fact, it's overtaken by these other figures, Beliar, Melchirisha, and various other uh, angel of darkness. Um and Satan seems to be kind of shoved aside until we get, you know, past the turn of the millennium and move on into the, the New Testament and other, a couple of other Dead Sea Scrolls during that period where he pops up a little bit. But it's very interesting that he, 
the Satan, the word Satan disappears, and he's it's overtaken by this other fig, this other term, Belial, Belial, which I, in my opinion, most of the time should be interpreted simply as wickedness or wicked, but it doesn't take away the the times where it is personified evil, where it does take on this kind of not so much ruler over the e- the problem of evil or whatever, but he's certainly there directing people towards evil rather than towards good. And that's a big, of course, the dualistic factor of the, of the scrolls comes into play there a great deal. So, Well, it's interesting. You, as I was reading your book, I was taken by how that, as you say, there, there isn't that personification. In the Hebrew Bible, there's Hasidon, which could be a function or, or could be an office. And then the Beliar Beliar, which also it's it's just a descriptor. It's not. It could be it could be referring to any any figure, supernatural or natural. And so there's this kind of continuation of these these titles of wickedness, not referring to one singular evil personified being. So I thought that your argument was 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 very persuasive. But as you mentioned, Satan uh, leaves it like falls out of use this term in Second Temple Judaism. You indicated this slightly a minute or two ago. What were some of the other names that were used for evil, for wickedness, for things like Hasatan in that simple Second Temple period? And what well, was, their, it, was also their function too? Well, their function is, is kind of falls into that dualistic character that you mentioned about you know the literature from the spirits, not just the scrolls or the Essene community, but it's kind of prevalent in quite a bit of the Jewish literature from the period. So it, it, it becomes, you know, one of the primary texts, I think, that's important in understanding the, the whole process of the problem of evil during this time is 1QS, which is the community rule. And within that text is the treatise of the two spirits, where the authors of that text argue that in at creation, God gave humanity two spirits, good and evil, the Yetzir Tov, Yetzir Ra. And throughout the process or humanity's growth, um, they, humanity has a choice. You know, you can follow the good spirit that God has given you, or you can follow the evil spirit that God has given you. And outside of that, not not just internally or anthropologically, but external of that, cosmologically, there are good spirits or angels, whatever you want to call them, trying to guide humanity or individuals towards Yahweh, towards keeping Torah. But at the same time, there are these evil spirits that pop up in in one Enoch, but at times they're also led by a figure named Mastama, which is in the Book of Jubilees, which eventually becomes uh, is named the, the Satan, Hasatan again. But again, in that text or that context, he is functioning under the authority and the sovereignty of God, and he only has permission from God to test and try humanity. And I think that's primarily the the big issue that's going on in Second Temple literature, in fact, even on into the New Testament, that the role or the function of whatever the name is, whether it's Satan or Belial or Belial, Angel of Darkness, Melchirisha, the King of Wickedness, his task is to test and try humanity because he thinks humanity is totally corrupt. In fact, it comes right out and says that in the book of Jubilees, Mastama says, you know, these 
humanity's just rubbish, you know, and he doesn't trust them. And, you know, we see that in the book of Job. He's going around the earth to and fro, seeing who so he can find who is not faithful to God. And his job is to test and try them and put them through the ringer, basically. And that goes on through the Second Temple period. And that's one of the primary functions or roles of this figure, along with the evil spirits that God has given him in the book of Jubilees to work with him in order to continue to do his function to test and try humanity. And so, so these, these spirits and also the, these testers are explicitly or implicitly sanctioned by God in, as a testing function. Yes. I okay. think that's one of the pretty clear things that come out within the Dead Sea Scrolls and other second double texts for sure. And is that, is that, does that separation or, or should I say, does that delegation occur because God can't be a source of temptation. I, I think of James in the New Testament where it says God cannot tempt us. And that must be rooted in Jewish tradition of saying that God can't be a source of, he's too good. Well, I think that what's going on here is, you know, because during the second temple period, we see Israel moving towards more of a pure monotheism, where before that, there's a lot of issues that we don't have time to talk about right now, but... And I think what what Israel and the Jewish people in the Second Temple period are trying to move God away from the responsibility of evil, and that all of a sudden these other figures are coming into play, and they're, they are the cause, or they are the 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 figures who are that cause about that bring about the evil actions of humanity in the world of Judaism at the time. So yeah, but. God is kind of being separated or pushed away or kept isolated from the problem of evil, where in the old Hebrew Bible, that wasn't so much the case. I mean, we're told God's the author of good and of evil. Yeah, that's in uh, second Isaiah, exactly. Um, so it's in the simple second temple period. It also continues in the New Testament where we get probably the most constantly erroneous connection of Satan with an Old Testament figure, the serpent in the garden. Where are the, what, what, what texts in the second temple period make that connection or at least connect the serpent to an evil spirit, a Satan like figure, etc. Well, I mean, we get a little bit about it in the new Testament, you know, the later texts of the new Testament, which are kind of depending on how, what, time period you put the second temple period in, you know, the book of Revelation falls outside of that basically because the second temple period ends at 70 CE with the destruction of the temple in uh, Jerusalem. But we kind of draw that in because it's still a Jew early Jewish text um, along with um, one of the primary ones that talk about Satan's function in the garden is the life of Adam and Eve. And that's probably the most prominent text that talks about the interaction of the Satan figure with the serpent. The serpent is not actually Satan, but he is being influenced by the Satan figure outside of the garden. And then the certain, the, you know, he of course lies to the serpent because, you know, to get him to do what he wants to do. And then we know, you know, we, we know the story of what goes on with Adam and Eve and the serpent, but it's not actually Satan. And we don't really get that idea of 
Satan and the serpent in the garden until we get to the life of Adam and Eve. There's no second temple text that really talks about that unless you count the book of Revelation where you get kind of hints about that. But the life of Adam and Eve is probably an early second century CE text. So it's much later than the New Testament or parts of the New Testament. Some would argue the book of Acts is early second century, but um, it seems very much that that idea is not really in play in the second temple period where the serpent's responsible for all of this. Um, and it seems more like it's human choice that is responsible for the problem of evil. Of course, that goes on in the garden too, because Eve had the, the opportunity, free will, just to choose good or evil. And some argue that that is those two spirits operating within Eve and within Adam. And she decides, oh, I'm going to follow after this one because I like the look of that fruit and I'm going to go get that. So, you know, you can kind of argue for that, that treatise of the two spirits in the garden if you wanted to, but um, it doesn't, there's really no text within that period that talks about the Satan figure in the garden until we get to um, the early second century in the life of Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite subjects, I presented this at, at SBL uh, a year ago, is the serpent seed, or at least a notion that Cain is not the offspring of Adam. He's the offspring of, of something else, whether it be the serpent or uh, an evil spirit or something. Are there What texts from this time, it's not very clear, but there are certain texts kind of indicate this or, or imply that, that Cain is, is, is evil, not because just of his choice, but like something ontological about him. Yeah, I think you're, you're, Primarily looking at probably earlier rabbinic texts that kind of really push that issue of, you know, the difference between Cain and and um, Abel and later Seth being the righteous or the just um, part of humanity. Where um, I know there are texts, and you probably know far better than I do, where you know Cain is the seat, actually is the seat of Satan, and that Adam had another wife who actually was responsible for Cain's birth as a result of her interactions with the Satan figure and birthed evil, so to speak, in, in the life of Cain. But it's not something that I really got into because it would have, would have just, you know, expanded things way too much. But um, it is a very interesting topic um, in relation to the whole problem of evil, Cain, the difference between Cain and Seth, Seth being the the newest son from Adam and Eve, and be, and the rabbis considered him to be a just, righteous person, where Cain was, of course, evil murderer. Mm -hmm. I, I think of uh, of First John, Cain is of the Eve, of the evil one, exactly. So you mentioned in the Second Temple period the term. Hasatan or Satan falls out of use, but then something really interesting happens in the New Testament. Satan is used, well, and devil with somewhat frequency, but all of those second temple terms like angel, darkness, mastima, uh, beliar, except for one occasion in Corinthians, falls out of use. So how is, I mean, uh, it, uh, there's a wide, I think, diversity of how Satan is portrayed, but quickly, aside from, we'll bracket Revelation, just in those gospels and and um, epistles, how is 
Satan kind of generally portrayed in the New Testament? How does it develop from Hebrew Bible and Second Temple period? Well, my opinion, he kind of he's following the same pattern that we see in the Hebrew Bible, that he is one who is trying and testing humanity to their faithfulness to God. And I think and you'll you can see in the book where I, I argue that the temptation of the trial of Jesus in the wilderness was a really great example of his function or Satan's function or the Diabolus, whichever text you're reading, of his function in the New Testament. Of course, there are some other prob- little problematic, particularly when you get to Revelation, like you said. Um, but I, I see that where he is there testing Jesus and his role as Messiah, you know, and that would create some real issues with um, some of our evangelical friends about, you know, well, Jesus couldn't possibly have failed or whatever. But what we see there is Jesus responding similarly to what some of the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us, particularly the Damascus document, where you respond to the Satan or tester, whether it's Beliar or Satan, whoever it is, when he comes at you to test and try you, you respond with scripture, respond to Torah. And the Damascus document says when one returns to Torah, the devil or Satan, the Hasatan must flee from you. And, you know, Jesus continues to respond with scripture after scripture after scripture. And all of a sudden Satan goes, okay, I've had enough. I'll come back later. See ya. <laughs> and off he goes. But we, I think we see, you know, with, um, Satan asking Jesus or asking God to test and try the disciples. I've come to sift them. And he has to ask permission to do that. He's not just doing it on his own. He can't just go out and do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He's under the control and the authority of God. And of course, he's his opponent. Uh, and I think this is part of the issue, part of the problematic issue of, you know, Jesus has come to end the problem of evil. Right. That's his. He has come to earth to bring about the end of evil. And that's the beginning of the end of the function of Satan, I think, is what we see in the New Testament. And when we get to later on into the the early church fathers, we start to see more of that where, you know, the possibility of his falling. And even in the book of Jubilees, the second the second temple, second century B.C. text, he says, you know, I've got a job to do, and I know it's coming to an end, but I need these spirits to help me do it while I've got this task to function, or perform, sorry, to perform for you, God. So, you know, you've got to give me some help. And I think he knows, as well as as everyone else does, that his job is coming to an end at some point. And I think that's the pro- when we, Jesus comes up on the scene, boom, that's the beginning of the end for mm. for the problem of evil. Of course, we can argue it's still definitely here in our world today for sure but um that's kind of the, i i see a some very similar function of what jesus is what satan is doing sorry in the new testament is what we saw in the hebrew bible and some of the texts that we see in second temple period jewish literature yeah. as well yeah there's a, there's that the continuity uh one other point uh, is is frequently satan is associated with like government or rulers. I know that in Luke four, when Jesus is tempted, uh, the devil says all, you know, all the kingdoms of the world are mine. Uh, Is there something about governments that was looked at as testers of, of Jewish communities or that they were 
evil or or something like this? Why why is Satan? I think this also happens in Second Temple, where he's associated with empire, government, state, etc. Yeah, I think that you know that that's one of the confusing texts. You know, he has he has all these kingdoms that he can give to give over to Jesus if we just follow him. Okay, so that's fine. But the thing is, there are human beings ruling over those kingdoms, right? So they are subject to the same testing and trying of everyone else. And they're maybe following over into the path of the Satan figure and turning to the evil or causing the problem of evil. You know, it's it's known through the whole Second Temple period, Israel was oppressed by all the empires that were around them. You know, not since the, the biblical period had they any real prominence as a force. And even then it was kind of spattered, you know, how strong they were. But when you get into the Second Temple period, you know, it's Babylon, Persia, the Hellenists, when Alexander the Great comes into the picture, when the Romans come into the picture, Israel is oppressed by the nations constantly. And, you know, we have the text of this, the 70, um, the Septuagint calls them angels set over, or sons of God, B'nai Elohim set over the nations. And um, if Satan is one of those, then it's possible that he is kind of ruling over those B'nai Elohim, and therefore he could say, well, these kingdoms are all mine. If I want to give them to you, I can. And that maybe ex- help explain what that's all about in that particular testing and trying. I also text. think of exilic, exilic prophet texts that are, are always wary about idols or about assimilating too much into these, uh, these communities that they have been forced into. So yes, I, I think that's, that's, uh, interesting connection and interesting historical kind of, again, continuity from old to new. So going to Revelation quickly, Revelation, I think, informs a lot of people's understanding of Satan, at least from the New Testament. We have the fire and brimstone. We have the, the great dragon. We have a, a seemingly a cosmic war in heaven. What's kind of what's going on there? And and you indicate in Revelation, we shouldn't, the chronology is too, too dis, like, confusing for us to really garner any concrete knowledge. Yeah, well, I think the first thing we have to understand is that the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic text, right? So it's not a text that should be read literally. And there's too many people, I think, or have my experience in the past where they'll have their Bible open to the book of Revelation and right next to it, they'll have their newspaper or today they'll have their laptop open to the latest news channel or whatever. So, yeah, so Revelation is apocalyptic text, so we shouldn't be reading it literally. And we have to understand the historical context of when that book was written. The early church was in the diaspora um, under the control, the authority of the Roman Empire. And if they did not conform to what Rome wanted, they were going to be oppressed. And at the same time, they're having to deal with Judaizers. Um, And there's various term and terminology within Revelation that kind of hints at that. And I think, you know, we have all these terms, like, you know, you mentioned the dragon, the great red dragon, the beasts. And I think my opinion 
And I think a lot of people in, who work in the book of Revelation would argue that these are symbolic of the empires that Israel is up against or facing, particularly the Roman Empire, or the leaders of some of the other communities who are opposing the early church, you know. Um, but it's a very complicated text because it's apocalyptic. And the problem is we don't, we're not there in the first century or the first or even the late first century, early second century. So we don't know the exact historical context of what the author is talking about. We can do the, the best we can. The easiest part to understand is the, the epistles in the beginning of it, where Jesus said, well, write this letter to the churches. Look, get your act together or I'm coming to put my foot down. Right. That's the easiest part to understand. But then when you move past those, you start to get into this language of oppressive nations. You know, they're all very symbolic terminology, probably referring to the Roman Empire, referring to the emperors and various other groups that might be around that are oppressing Israel, whether it be Judaizers or maybe even some of the Jewish leadership that survived the destruction of the temple. So it's, it, it is a difficult text, and the chronology of it is very difficult because when, particularly when you get through the war, Great War in Heaven, where Michael uh, and the Satan or the Great Dragon have this fight, you know, and he's thrown down to earth. So when exactly did that happen? Is that pre-flood, pre-creation, uh, pre-humanity? But it it can't be, or I suppose it could be, but it doesn't seem chronologically that that's the case, that it's actually probably talking about something that's yet to come, the final demise of the Satan figure or his task, his function, or the end of his function or whatever that might be. So, But it's really, that's probably the most difficult text to try to reconcile in this whole problem of evil because of the language that the author uses and the context that we we're not quite sure what exactly is going on. No, completely. It's an extremely enigmatic text uh, that I think that, that of course leads to in our in our contemporary time lots of strange interpretations. But moving on to to the kind of that final chapter, your your final main argument is that the early church fathers, and to a lesser extent the apostolic fathers, were reacting against Gnostics, and this leads to the creation of kind of the, the current understanding of Satan. Who were the, like, what are the Gnostics? I know that Gnostics is a very wide term, but in your text, how do you kind of boil down Gnostic understanding of evil? And then how did church fathers, particularly like Origen and Augustine, create the Satan doctrine in a sense from those confrontations? Well, I, I, I kind of try to keep Gnostic kind of broad, you know, I, I go through, I think I identify a couple of groups that are particularly important. But generally speaking, there I we know, you know, they have this good, which is the spiritual realm, and we have this evil, which is the material realm. And within that, you know, again, very dualistic that we've seen running, you know, ever since the Jews have been in Persia, or even before that. Um, so we see these very uh, good and evil empires, so to speak. And so the Gnostics basically, and again, I use that loosely, that term loosely, not all of them did this, but the God of Israel, Yahweh, was the good God who created 
you know, the spirit realm and everything that's spiritual and so forth. And then they elevated this Satan figure called and identified him with various names, one of them being Demiurge, um, as the creator of this material world, which in their opinion was evil, right? There was no good in the material world. The only good was in the spirit world that was created by Yahweh. And so they have elevated him to kind of the uh, very near on par with the God of Israel. And of course, the early church fathers, some of them being Gnostics, came out of that Gnostic world and moved into an ortho- what we would call Orthodox Christianity and then realized that this is not the way it is. This is not what the biblical text tells us. So we need to battle this. And what they and I think what they did was they tried to bring that Satan figure down from where the Gnostics had elevated him to. Not that they were going to try to eliminate him because that just was not possible because he's so much in the literature, Old Testament, New Testament, not so much in the middle, but, and so they're trying to bring him down. And so they bring him to a point where he's kind of the enemy of God, but that's not really how we see in the text leading up to that. He's the enemy of humanity because he hates them and knows things are corrupt, but the early church fathers kind of bring him down and kind of make him kind of an enemy of God more than an enemy of humanity in order to kind of dilute that Gnostic idea of him being on par or nearly on par with the God of Israel. And I think that's kind of where we get this twist. And then when you move on through the medieval period and you get into the time of, you know, guys like Dante and Milton, like I mentioned early on, they start to create this image where he is the ruler over hell, which there's nowhere that's the case in the Hebrew Bible, Second Temple literature, even in the New Testament, you'll get a few little hints of it in, the, of course, the book of Revelation, <laughs> which, again, is problematic. But um, but then when you move all, and then we get to our modern era, our church tradition from the early church fathers and the images of Dante and Milton have created this Satan figure with the horns, with the tail, with the red skin, which, you know, that's so not what we see a Hasatan in the Hebrew Bible or early Jewish or New Testament texts. If there's anything, I, I yeah, exactly, about the, this, this problem of saying he's a ruler of hell, if there's any place where a, a, an evil being would reside in the New Testament, it's in the sky or in that kind of like, you know, cosmic hierarchy, right? I think of Ephesians, uh, I think of also in Romans, right? There are these kind of principalities uh, that exactly rulers of the air. So I, that's an interesting twist. So Archie, I think we have, we have gone through your, again, meticulously researched and argued book, Satan, the problem of evil, uh, going from Hebrew Bible to the kind of early church father concretization of this notion of Satan. But before we go and before we end the podcast, what are some future projects or future ideas that you are currently working on? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, well, I, I, one that just actually a, a friend and I were talking about yesterday was kind of looking at the concept of hell from a, a similar track that I did with 
Satan figure how what does hell look like in the Hebrew Bible? What does it look like in Second Temple? What does it look like in New Testament, early church fathers? And then I may take it on into Dante in that particular book, if I do that. I'm not sure. Right now, I'm heading up a project with uh, Lauren Stuckenbrook and another colleague, Ron Herms, where we're doing a 21-volume monograph series on each book of the New Testament in light of Second Temple Judaism and how Second Temple Judaism helps us under the gospel, understand the Gospel of Matthew or the Book of Revelation, even. So that's the major project that we're in right now. Um, and I'm I'm writing a volume in that on Jude and First and Second Peter, which you know one Enoch is a big a big factor in, quoted directly. <laughs> yeah, in that particular book. So uh, and then I have some other stuff i'm writing uh, a chapter for a volume on the myth of satan for routledge and i can't remember what sorry i can't remember the name of the volume and then i'm also writing a chapter on the development of monotheism in second temple judaism and that's actually a paper i'm also going to present that as a paper at sbl this coming november so yeah i got a lot of other things going on but you know, it's just, <laughs> there's so many do you want to do, but you just, you know, trying to find the time to do them all. <laughs> it seems like you're working on a lot of fruitful scholarship, which uh, I will be very interested uh, to read and and, uh, and research on. So, Archie, thank you so much again for, for joining me today. Uh, thank you, Jackson. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And to uh, all the listeners, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, talking about Satan and the problem of evil, from Bible to the early church fathers. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day.